Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. We look at Psalm 2 today. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. This text starts out with the idea that the the wicked leaders of this world are fighting against God. So the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. That's a very interesting line, by the way. Um, That's one that you can pick up on as a family and you can have an excellent, excellent conversation about really the gospel on this verse. No matter what wicked things the rulers of this world come up with, they all fail, even if they seem in the moment to succeed. They all fail. Why? Well, this gets us to look to Christ. It gets us to look to truly the last day, to his return. It doesn't matter how well we live here or how poorly we live here. It doesn't matter if earthly governors are tyrannous or if they're you know, benevolent rulers. In the end, no matter how wicked they are, Christ delivers us. They cannot defeat Jesus. They tried, right? The Jewish rulers and the the Roman officials, they tried to defeat Jesus. But they failed. Christ is victorious. Christ sits on the throne that is above all thrones, and there is nothing that an earthly ruler can do to stop that. And so if you belong to him, you are his indeed. And there is no ruler who can take that away from you. As Luther says in the the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, take they our goods, fame, child, or wife. The victory still has been won. The kingdom remains ours forever. So the attempts of the nations as they rage and plot against God that we see in this psalm, are in vain. They're in vain. They don't overthrow God and his kingdom. 
And they also don't overthrow us because we are part of God's kingdom. So really, it's a beautiful gospel message you can bring across here with these verses. So in verse 2, we see them plotting against God. They are preparing to rebel against him and against his anointed. Yahweh is the divine name given us to the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 is where Moses hears that name from God himself. We can sometimes take Yahweh, almost like we do with the word God. Sometimes we can take Yahweh and only see it as the Father. But other times it's quite clear that we read Yahweh as the whole trinity. I think we use God that way. Sometimes when we say the word God in our English language, it's pretty clear we're actually talking about the Father. And other times, it's pretty clear we're talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I think that's probably fair to consider here because you've got Yahweh and against his anointed. And in our ESV text, that anointed word is capitalized, as is the word Son a few verses down. There's a reason for that. It's a reference to Jesus. Now, this whole section, we can take a step back and say this is twofold. Um, you can talk about this in regards to whoever is serving God as king over Israel at this time. But ultimately and fully, this comes about in Jesus Christ himself, not in any earthly king, even, even David, which this psalm may well have been written at the time of David as a reference to him. But it's truly going to be fulfilled in the end by Jesus himself. So to be anointed is to have oil poured over your head, which marks you as set apart for a specific function in the kingdom of God. Uh, so God had his people anoint their prophets, their priests, and their kings. And David, certainly again as a king, would be the Lord's anointed. David refers to Saul that way. When Saul has rebelled against God and, and God has now anointed David to be king over Israel, Saul still lives. And as Saul attempts to kill David frequently, and David gets the opportunity to return the favor and actually take Saul's life, he doesn't do it. And he tells his servants that he could not raise his hand against Yahweh's anointed. This anointed word in Hebrew is Mashiach, or in English we say Messiah. So the kings of the earth are plotting against God the Father and against his Messiah, the Christ which is the Greek word for anointed. Jesus is the anointed one. He is our prophet. He is our priest, and he is our king. So we see all these things coming out in this text. Verse 3, uh, it's our sinful nature. As we try to break the bonds that, are, are, that we feel are upon us, as we try to strip ourselves away from what God has, has done for us in creating us, this happens a lot. Uh, you know, every now and again, I get in conversations with other Christians, and they almost, in a way, view God's word like this. They don't want to be bound by it. They don't want to take Paul's words in the epistles seriously. They want to be able to live their life however they want to live their life. They look at the Ten Commandments and say, no, I don't really, I don't want to do that. I like X, Y, or Z that's going on in my life just the way it is, just fine. And those are troubles, uh, certainly. And this is a reference not to Christians, this is to others, but the world is viewing it the same way. And the world around us today still does. Our God is viewed as a very cold and 
harsh and strict ruler. Um, I think the way it's been described in American history the last few generations is they, they see our God as being no fun. Sex outside of marriage, that's a no-go. Well, you know, what kind of a God is that? Why? What do you mean we can't get drunk and, and do all the things that we want to do? So, no fun, kind of the descriptor that we see sometimes. So they're trying to break free of what they think are the restraints that God has put on them, when really all God has done is laid out for them what actually works well. His law is what is actually good for them and beneficial for them, whereas the things that they seek to do are, are destructive and cause them harm that they may not even realize and recognize, at least not in the moment but it may come back to hurt them later. So the world does that in many ways. We can have that conversation amongst ourselves and our households. Um, what are some of the things about our own sinful natures? What are some of the ways that we find ourselves rebelling against God the most? I think most Christians can, can pretty quickly come up with the struggles that really get to them the things that they have the most difficulty with. I know, you know, of myself, I know the sins that, that afflict me the most. And when you're in those, when you're in those moments, you're struggling with the temptation, it's tough. It's tough to trust in God and not find ourselves here wanting to break free from what really ends up being the bondage to sin. Paul talks this way in his letter, I believe it's the Romans epistle, where he writes that we have been set free from our slavery to sin and we are now slaves to God. You're slave to someone. Break free not of God. Break free of the slavery of sin, which is only going to happen by trusting in Christ because it is Christ who delivers us from that sin. Verse 4, God has no fear of these kings. He has no reason to. They have no power over him. They have no authority over him. They can't even touch him. They can't harm him whatsoever. So God does not fear them. Instead, he judges them. That's verse 5. He speaks to them in his wrath. He terrifies them in his fury. The judgment of God is deserved by all people. And there, it is God's right to bring about his judgment whenever he chooses to do so, and in whatever way he chooses. Sometimes God's judgment is swift and strong, and it ends the life of the sinner. We've seen that in the Old Testament many times. Other times, it's not as strong, and the sinner survives. And in moments like that, God's judgment is meant to bring about repentance in the one who's been judged. In the times when the judgment ends their sinful life, their rebellious life, in those moments, the judgment was meant to bring about repentance in others. So God may judge a wicked nation so that the nations around them will see and that they will repent. Or God may judge an individual partially so that the individual will repent. And we see these different things happening in Scripture. When you get to verse 6, God says he has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. Zion is another reference to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a hilly region. I've heard some people say Zion refers to a specific hill, but Scripture just uses Zion and Jerusalem interchangeably. So Jerusalem was the capital of God's holy people. 
that was the capital city. And so the king of Israel would reign from that place. Also of note, as we've talked about this being Jesus then, not just an Israelite king, any of them, but Jesus. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and it is on that hill of Jerusalem, just outside the city gate where he is lifted up. He's crucified. His cross. We have a hymn. I forget which one. One of our hymns in our hymnal describes the cross of Christ as being his throne. And it's a really odd phrase, but maybe someday we can unpack that together. Verse 7, Yahweh declares, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You can ask your children who God spoke to with those words. Who did God say this about? Jesus, you know, we think of this baptism and his transfiguration. God opens up the heavens and says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The transfiguration, he adds words for the disciples, listen to him or hear him, depending on your translation. The book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 33, and then also Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 5, verse 5, those three spots actually cite this Old Testament verse as speaking about Jesus. Verse 8, Jesus rules over all. So the nations are his heritage. He inherits the whole earth. All of the earth is his possession. We learn that in the New Testament, that God has put all things under Jesus. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, somewhere in the 20s. I forget which exact verse that is, maybe 26, 27. And also Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 18 says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We know that as Christ has created this world, you know, the whole Trinity was involved in the process of creation. Christ is now restoring the world to the kingdom of God. He's making it whole again. He's making it his again after we had destroyed it. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. So that shows strength. And he will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That shows the fullness, the totality of God's judgment. You could use that one as a devotion, a family devotion activity. It's a dangerous one, so I don't know that I recommend it, especially not with little, little children, um, but essentially take a piece of pottery that you no longer want and let your child smash it. Can you put this back together again? God's judgment. When God finally brings about his judgment, and we talk about the last day usually with that. God's judgment is final. So Christ is described sometimes in Scripture as the judge. Verse 10 uh, shows us that this chapter, though, is a call for repentance. The kings of the earth who have been plotting against God are being called to repent, called to be humble, and instead to serve the Lord. Serve the Lord, serve Yahweh with fear, rejoice in trembling. So that's their call. That's what God is giving them to do. He has created them. He cares for them also. And then our last verse, verse 12, kiss the son is a reference to honor. I mean, you've probably seen the, the movies uh, from like middle ages kinds of times where the, the servant kisses the king's hand or his ring. That's kind of the reference here. It's showing a, a loyalty, a, a subjectedness to the son. The son is in charge. The son is our king. Now, 
you could look at the, the next word, lest he be angry. You could look at the he as being God the Father, or you could look at it as Jesus. Um, I'm, I lean towards it being Jesus in the context here. Uh, all who reject Jesus perish in the way. And again, we've just talked about in verse 9 that Jesus is going to be the one casting the judgment. So his wrath is quickly kindled. That's not the normal picture that we have of Jesus. But he is God, and he is just, and he is right in his judgments. So he is the parish, those who reject Jesus perish, but those who take refuge in Jesus are blessed or saved, as we talked about yesterday with Psalm 1. So that's a, actually a nice summary of the chapter. Those who rest in Jesus, who take refuge in him, will be saved, but those who reject him will perish. Praise me.